Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Our first guest this morning is Dominic Constant. He's Managing Director at Deutsche Bank Global, Head of Interest Rates Research, and he joins us now uh, in the studio. Good morning. Great to see you. Good morning. Let me start with a broad question, and that is when, when, when you're looking at the curve, when you're looking at rates, how much has that forecast changed in light of, say, what we heard from Mario Draghi last week, all of the, uh, the chorus we've heard from, from Federal Reserve policymakers as well? Has it changed much here over these last few months? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we uh, we were um, uh, around the Brexit uh, period. We were uh, very constructive on rates, and we had a target of uh, 125 for tens and a flatter yield curve. And basically, uh, we think uh, low rates became too much of a sort of a, a bad thing from the central bank perspective, especially at the long end. They they felt that the yield curve was too flat, was creating problems in the entitlement industry, creating challenges for say banks because they they tend to like steeper yield curves. And so I think you've seen this sort of jawboning exercise whereby uh, they want to basically get the long rates up a little bit. Uh, and that's not because they want to tighten monetary conditions per se, uh, but they'd like a little bit of extra risk premium in there that uh, uh, can help uh, perhaps uh, uh, entit- the entitlement um, people like the, the insurers. Uh, and uh, there's also maybe an element whereby uh, the hunt for yield, uh, whereby uh, investors who might otherwise buy bonds end up being pushed into riskier assets by those instead and maybe create some kind of overvaluation in those, uh, those asset classes. Uh, that that's a, perhaps a concern. So I think that whether you agree with it or not, that's what the central bankers have been sort of you know, aiming at. And the, the BOJ targeted the ten-year yield, stop it going up or down. The ECB is you know mumbling about taper, whether or not you really believe it. And obviously the uh, the Fed is pushing on with uh, what they hope to to, do, to be able to do is raise rates in December. Looking at Treasuries in specific, uh, is the long end attractive to you right now at all? I think it depends on your horizon yeah. and obviously, you know, your view. I mean, my view is uh, it's 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 getting attractive. It's not quite there yet. I, uh, I'd like to sort of uh, basically buy ten-year treasuries, you know, above two percent. I think it can probably go there, um, but you're going to be buying it over two percent with a view it's going to come back down again to around one and a half, or if not one and a quarter, based on uh, what we have is some sort of disappointing growth uh, uh, expectations, especially in the U.S. Uh, over the next year. Uh, who are the, the, the Fed policymakers that you listen to uh, most closely? Of course, you listen to, to Chair Yellen and, and Vice Chair Fisher, but uh, of the others, uh, who's saying stuff that's the most materially interesting to you? Well, I think what's interesting uh, is uh, obviously sort of n- not necessarily anyone in particular, but more uh, the, the sort of general sort of, you know, uh, consensus outside the sort of Yellen-Fisher uh, uh, equation. And so you see, for example, some of the hawks uh, who were speaking maybe at the beginning of last year, you, you could happily ignore them. Then suddenly you see sort of some, some more dovish members, perhaps, you know, like Rosengren or Evans sort of, you know, moving 
towards some of those viewpoints and then suddenly Dudley sort of you know pops up again and says you know, <laughs> tenure yields are too low so so you know things like that uh, I think catch my attention and uh, and then you know that there's some pressure you know we, we know you know Yellen is obviously you know very much on the sort of dovish side classically speaking uh, but you know there's some sort of pressure and I think it's like we kind of all, all agree you know we all would like to see higher rates uh, but I think the idea is uh, you know whether they have the guts to do it and that kind of uh, uh, you know depends on what this sort of uh, you know significant you know minority sort of ends up Dominic you're talking there about uh, a more cautious view of where interest rates will go lower for longer and everything hunkering down GDP estimates and such when we do the dots if we're going to continue to do the the dots what is the constant long term that they should be looking at is long term March of 2017 is long term where it is right now or should they go out because of your view to 2020 and make a guesstimate out there? Well, I mean, I, th- I think, uh, um, I think long term is uh, well. I mean, right now, you know, we're thinking long term, sort of around, you know, obviously the sort of you know two or three years from now. I, I think the 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 issue that we have in 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 this sort of growth cycle is uh, it's more of a stagnation rather than a recession. And what that means is that there's no sort of imminent sort of exogenous shock that's being sort of applied to the economy that's suddenly going to sort of turn this cycle. And uh, and it's kind of like a slow bleed but we see the we, we see the nature of the slow bleed it's the idea that you know as you hit full employment and you almost go beyond what we consider full employment there's no sort of natural response of higher wages and all that kind of stuff or productivity kicking into the at a higher level uh, and and that means uh, you know this long term really can be sort of out to that sort of two three four you know five years but the pro- the, the probabilities are such uh, that you 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 effectively will uh, you know there will be some some negative shock somewhere uh, in that time horizon and that's where you know they're they're done raising rates basically you stated earlier this morning the idea that there would be negative rates for longer does that leak over to a carny united kingdom that's saying no 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 we'll never do negative rates is it even imaginable that yellen and her follow-on will have to consider negative rates well, I definitely think the the U.S. will have to uh, consider negative rates on a on, you know on a five ten year view, just because uh, once this cycle really is finished, uh, the, um, you, you, the what's the choice? You're you're going to cut rates a couple of times because that's you know they won't have risen them that far, uh, or you go back to these extraordinary measures on quantitative easing, which I think you know have their own issues around them. So my guess is it's probably going to be a combination of both, and the market will definitely think about negative rates. There are lots of legal issues for negative rates in the states though so those have to be addressed but it's a different issue in terms of the market being able to perhaps price uh, in terms of uh, uh, market expectations they could price them uh, the uh, I think the UK is different because the UK is obviously can have an extremely weak currency it's having a weak currency it can import inflation quite readily uh, on that basis it's something that the US you know you can't do uh, the US is a very large economy it's relatively insular uh, we have a reserve currency so by all means we can try and get our currency down at the expense of the rest of the world but even then we're not going to import that much inflation uh, you know because the service sector can hold it up so I think you know there uh, that's the difference I mean so the UK can perhaps avoid negative rates if they just collapse their currency and and one of the Mm -hmm. arguments for Japan and and, and the eurozone is they've found it very hard to collapse you know their currency right right. interesting catalytically what would be more powerful here for rates something out of the the Bank of Japan or the ECB a a change in, in either of those banks 
Well, I mean, we've actually had a little buzzword recently uh, whereby we've been arguing that sort of Japan has, has kind of almost become the marginal pricer of global assets. And they've done that because obviously there have been you know, significant outflows out of Japan. I mean, they, they, you know, they are a very big investor. Uh, but it's really through uh, the JGB yield curve, their yield curve absolutely collapsed earlier this year uh, on, uh, as interest rates uh, came down. And uh, that kind of forced uh, a lot of money to come out of Japan into other the bond markets. And it's all part and parcel of the quantitative easing that they're doing, uh, and also to some extent the negative rates that they've employed. Uh, that works through something we call the cross-currency basis that got very extreme, which is kind of the cost to the Japanese investor of hedging their overseas purchases. Uh, so we've been monitoring that very carefully, and uh, you can sort of see the influence they have on yields. And that's mm. why when we talk about risk premium going away in our markets, uh, we can actually sort of directly link it back to what the Japanese investor base is doing. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, if I was the Fed and you're sort of saying, well, you know, risk premium going away in the markets isn't great because it may lead to financial right. stability issues, you know, maybe you want to reverse that a little bit. Dominic, not to get you in trouble with Mr. Crying or compliance, but with your many, many contacts over the year in London, what is the constant thought on the future of finance and Wall Street in London? Well, I mean, my guess is that the London financial uh, sector will figure it out in the sense that you know London has always figured it out so that it won't be nearly as draconian as uh, you know as people sort of perhaps fear um, I mean obviously right now I mean the, the whole concern around this sort of passporting is is a great concern and and there are incentives clearly for the Europeans to uh, you know to take back certain banking functions and sort of in terms of clearing and things like that in the eurozone um, but I, my, my guess is that you know that there will be you know that yeah. London is too too rich uh, uh, a center uh, for financial talent, and uh, they have all the incentives to try and work o- around whatever restrictions. That talent they, was uh, schooled on certain theories. And Stan Fisher, at his recent Economic Club of New York speech, talking on the IS curve, back to Hicks 39. It's a different world today, I guess. Are you using the theories you learned, or is it a new world for you as you think every day and try to piece the, the, the system together? Well, we're sort of relying on the theories that we've learned. I mean, I, I go back to uh, uh, Thatcher when she uh, was this sort of great, quote, pro-European. She knew exactly what she was doing in terms of putting uh, uh, the, the London at the centre of the financial world uh, and all the benefits that that was going to bring with it. And, uh, you know, for all the sort of headline news around these negotiations, I mean, why would, uh, you know, why would L- London or, or the, the British want to you know, shoot themselves in the foot? It just doesn't make makes sense. So I think there's a lot of posturing going on at the moment. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I would be, uh, you know, I'd be shocked if uh, there was uh, in London was no longer <laughs> what it currently is. We talk a lot about banks thinking of moving headquarters or offices overseas. But among your friends and colleagues, is there conversation about that about leaving London because of the sentiment in the place? Has that changed at all since since the vote? Um, no, not 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 so not so obviously. I mean, uh, to be honest, I think uh, 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 there's a lot of people sort of you know still can't believe the outcome of the vote. I mean, remember, London itself was overwhelmingly in, sure. in favour you know of, of staying within the, uh, the the European Union. So um, you know, I think obviously people there are people who are concerned that if they don't have a you know British passport, what does that mean? And you know, there's definitely you know some people running off and making sure they're getting their British passports. I mean, I, you hear that from sort of uh, some colleagues. 
Um, but in general, no, I think there's, uh, you know, there's, uh, there, there's a still somewhat a sort of disbelief that this is actually happening. And this is why I think um, um, the, 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 the Tory government is trying to sort of insist that, you know, Brexit really means Brexit because it might be very easy for people to think, well, you know, maybe it doesn't actually mean that. Uh, and so that's why they're sort of uh, having to approach this in a hard way. Um, so we'll see what happens next year um, when they finally decide, if and when they finally decide to pull the trigger on uh, the article. From that referendum to, to the election here in the States, how much is, uh, is the campaign, how much is the election weighing on uh, forecasting rates at this point? Oh, uh, you mean the election in the, yeah, in the, in the US? US yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, it, uh, it could have weighed much more. Uh, and to some extent, perhaps it still does weigh. But um, if there was a sort of shake-up <clears throat> in terms of the, uh, the political sort of outlook in terms of gridlock. Um, so obviously, you know, th- there is a view that if there was a clean sweep, particularly by the Republicans, but perhaps by the Democrats, uh, then maybe a gridlock would end and that could change uh, your outlook. Uh, I think if there's uh, ongoing gridlock, um, I think people are going to say more of the same. And unfortunately, more of the same is, is uh, from an economic perspective and certainly from a financial market perspective. Perspective is 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 a bit disappointing because it's going to mean mm. more financial repression, low volatility. You know, regardless of uh, of your views on the actual you know parties, I mean, we don't really want more of the same. That's a problem. Dominic, thank you so much. Very generous of you to be with us for these hours this morning here at Bloomberg. He is with Deutsche Bank. Dominic Constum uh, writing uh, just terrific notes. And the main theme I heard there, folks, is a real subdued view on rate structure forward on where yields are going. reported earnings yesterday after the bell and we're drawn to the forecast of sales for the next quarter. Apple saying they'll be between 76 billion and 78 billion. Analysts had expected 75.4 billion. For more, we're joined by Walter Pisick. He's an analyst with BTIG. Walter, always great to speak with you. Thanks. Great to be back on. So the, the question going into this, I think, was would Samsung's loss here, all the, the trouble caused by the, the problems with the Galaxy Note 7, become Apple's gain? And what did we learn uh, from the report yesterday and, and in the conference calls uh, uh, about that? Yeah, and I think the answer is kind of. And by the way, we also heard some feedback from some of the operators that reported before Apple did. And I think my initial view was, or I guess question was, if someone was buying a high-end Android phone, do they just stick within that ecosystem because that's what they were used to? And I think what we've been hearing is that, that they have actually seen switchers because there's not, particularly on the, on the, uh, the, larger, uh, the larger models, like the 7 Plus versus the Note, that they were actually pulling these people in, which is actually really good news. If Apple can get them in their own ecosystem and the customer's pleased with it, it becomes sticky on their end, and it's going to be harder for Android, whatever vendor wants to get that customer back, uh, to pull them back. So whether it was the operators earlier in the week um, or what Apple was saying on their call, um, it sounds like they are benefiting. Now, I just want to put one pause on all mm. this is <laughs> you, you can't get a 7 Plus right now, right? The, the ship dates are not out until end of the year. So, so their own um, inability to, to ramp up the, the volumes on the 7 Plus, maybe because they didn't expect this mix shift to happen, um, might limit uh, how much that they can benefit. So I think they really need to focus on getting those volumes up to grab you know, more and more of those, um, those Samsung uh, customers that, that just don't have a product right now. I know Tom is waiting for his, uh, his 7. Let me ask you, Walt, about uh, the way that Tim Cook, how Tim Cook's Apple keeps people in that ecosystem. It's through services, I imagine. And what color did we get yesterday about 
how Apple's been improving its services. Obviously, there were problems with Apple Music and 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 uh, uh, its, its other offerings. Has that improved? Have we seen that stabilize? It, that's been that's been fine. Look, this, the new messaging is is, is great. It, it had really lagged behind other third party applications, so that was for one important because look, if if you're texting all of your friends and it works well, you're less likely to leave if you need to stay on an Apple phone to do that. But even before things like that, the company for years has been focused on when you're near your computer or your iPad or things like that. That you know all these services kind of transfer. They do whatever they can to keep you in so that they get your upgrade um, every two years or however long it ends up being. Are they getting that upgrade? What is the character of the upgrade? When you talk to Apple bears, do they actually believe that people won't upgrade, that they'll sit on the phone for an extra six hours or six months? Those bears have, have had their day, I think, for the past year because those upgrade rates were clearly extending if you looked at how the numbers were. But what's been surprising and frankly, reflected on this rally in the stock, you know, over yeah. the past couple of months, um, has been that the upgrades have actually come in for this phone. I mean, everyone think about this months ago, right? Everyone's right. saying, "Oh, this is not really that great. We're going to wait till next year." And now the operators are actually seeing it. So the operators that have now reported are talking about upgrade rates or phone sales that that should go up. Right. And they're saying, like, look, our, we can't even tell you where the demand can end up being because we're still not getting enough right, supply right. from Apple to, to really right. fully judge this. Yeah, It's a terrible problem. I'd short the stock. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Walter, free cash flow, 43, 46, 50, 70. And then the modeling of Wall Street is for a diminishment of cash flow. Do you buy that or does the juggernaut continue? I mean, the, the margins... Obviously, the concern was about 50 basis points, nothing. That's not something that's going to crush their ability to generate free cash flow. Taxes were ticking up a little bit, but again, marginally, not something that's going to change the cash flow. The interesting thing was we were thinking that they were going to buy $10 billion um, of stock back, and I think they only bought about four. Um, so as a result, I'm sorry, six. So, so four less than we expected. So the cash position went up uh, to $150 billion. So the cash is actually rising um, at a time when, you know, Cook on the call last night again brings up, well, we're intensely interested in these things. So you have to wonder, okay. um, again, what are they doing with their cash? Dividend, we're maybe increase the dividend, maybe acquisitions, we'll have to say. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. David Costin is a mathematician from Brown University. He has the joy as a strategist of actually doing securities analysis before he was a guru, which makes for a different language and different work. David, thrilled to have you with us with Goldman Sachs. Of course, I've been watching the earnings, and the new-new for me is next to no growth up top, and every quarter, every company's manufacturing down the income statement. The money question for me for next year Partial differentials, unit dynamics, 
price dynamics up at the revenue line. You got to get down to EBITDA, whatever margin you want to pick. Is there enough wiggle room forward to keep that shell game going, or they have they cost cut their way to maximum efficiency? Well, uh, with uh, apologies to your pejorative question, yeah. I think there's uh, <laughs> there's enough uh, wiggle room. Yes, the margins are likely to remain flat. And that's an important issue to think about, that with the U.S. economy growing at around 2%, that means the top-line revenue growth, if we uh, include some inflation here as well, you're looking at modest top-line growth, call Mm -hmm. that 4%, a little faster from overseas. So that's your revenue line growing in the 4 for perhaps 5% level broadly across the market. And margins are likely to have peaked either late this year or sometime in 2017, depending on the individual sector of the market. But broadly speaking, markets uh, margins have been flat for, for about five years. And it's been technology margins. The technology margins have been the key driver of why Overall margins have uh, okay. basically been coming up. But I looked at lows. Pepsi Cola. I don't know. It's just I looked at that company and it really stuck out to me. This game of making the margin down below, given that there's next to no revenue. Do they have the wiggle room forward to continue to manufacture decent operating income, decent EBITDA, whatever? Well, from an earnings point of view, certainly buybacks has been a contributor mm. to fast, faster earnings growth. Your revenue growth growing very, very modestly, and there's been some margin. Uh, whatever margins they've been able to eke out have been largely from uh, buybacks and more technology spending to try to eke out uh, singles and doubles, basically. It's been, very, uh-huh. it's been a tough operating environment, and the market has reflected that. How does uh, real GDP growth affect the markets? I know you've been modeling this. Uh, if, if that changes, what effect does that have on the markets? So the way to think about real GDP growth is every 100 basis points, every one percentage point faster or slower growth is going to add roughly $5 a share to earnings. And let's use a base of about $105. So that gives you an immediate translation of how to think about your impact on faster or slower GDP growth. Uh, the way to think of uh, impact on, on earnings. And about 70% of the revenues of U.S. corporations are domestic. And so, therefore, the most important driver of sales, of margins, of earnings for companies is the broad growth, pace of growth in the economy. And mm-hmm. the economy right now is growing at about 2%. Uh, not a you know s- super uh, fast growth rate, clearly, but also it's, it's, it's not in contraction. So it's growing at a, at, a, at a muted level. And that is what has created uh, a... The idea of what uh, what Larry Summers terms the secular stagnation, the idea that no matter how low rates are, it's not inducing corporations to be investing yeah. money. And so they're, they've been pretty reluctant, and that's what keeps uh, growth slow. David and I were talking about what to talk to you about. I've got to ask you about M&A without talking specifically about Telephone or, or, or Time Warner. Does this game just continue because Janet Yellen has made money so cheap that there's no growth? i got to buy something to keep the game going? Well, if we think about the waterfall, and that's a good description, waterfall of the preference, preferred uses of cash, most companies' first use is capital spending. And companies are spending a lot on CapEx for maintenance. That's the first. Second is research and development. And the third is M&A. Those are the three initiatives that most companies pursue in terms of growth. And so the idea of allocating capital to M&A makes sense in an environment where interest rates, as you point out, are very low and you can finance uh, transactions at, at attractive do big, levels. Do big transactions like this work in the cost and history library? Is there a successful merger outcome? 
big, big deals? Uh, there, there are there are some uh, combinations that make strategic sense in terms of the business profile of individual companies. Right. Uh, we've done a lot of work on spinoffs, mm. and so, mm-hmm. so oftentimes you have a combination, then that leads to a spinoff of a, another division. Right. So there's often investment opportunities around those. Yeah. Um, but it depends. In some cases, there's a long uh, approval mm. process that uh, has taken place, and that makes yeah. the investment process a little more difficult. Just very quickly, your 30 seconds, David Costin on the general market. Buy, hold, or sell. Can you acquire shares today? Uh, you are looking at a modest increase over the next 12 months, you're looking at single-digit, mm-hmm. call it 5% type of return. So you can call that okay. buy in the context of uh, other opportunities, but it's still relatively modest in terms of historical returns. John, that seashore you're looking at in New Jersey looks better and better. <laughs> <laughs> I have some oceanfront property I'd like to say. Very good. David, thank you so much. <laughs> David Costin uh, with Goldman Sachs. Can't say enough about the acuity of his research. Jonathan Miller, it's been way too long since we've spoken to you. To our global audience, you have been out front in the real estate slowdown in New York and I think maybe San Francisco. Is it everywhere else or is it just contained to the stupidity of these two zip codes? Uh, I think the, the it, it's not – first of all, we don't want to insult those two zip codes. but Sure we do. <laughs> I can't afford them. <laughs> Uh, so what we're seeing is more of a slowdown in higher-priced housing markets, higher-cost housing markets. Is it trickling down? Uh, we're seeing a little bit of that, actually. So what we've been seeing in these markets is an increase in resale inventory, which has uh, slowed down the uh, frenetic pace. Um, bidding right. wars aren't, aren't what they were, but they're still above average. We're, the way I describe the market right now in general um, – is uh, we're somewhere between white hot and above average. Okay, that's a nice co- co- uh, ca- uh, character there. Are the vectors of owning a home the same as renting a home right now? Those two separate markets that you deal in. Uh, the, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's still uh, much cheaper to uh, to buy. the The problem is, um, and this is on a national front, is inventory is very tight. Uh, so we're 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 seeing you know. Uh, uh, affordability be, being challenged. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Throw in t- tight credit on the bank lender side, and it's still the same story. Mm-hmm. Sort of your most recent note, it was about Greenwich, Connecticut, a, ta- <laughs> a town founded in 1640, if I'm not mistaken, and you call it a hotbed of new urbanism. What's going on in Greenwich? Well, what's been fascinating about uh, the suburbs uh, that ring New York City, especially the high-end markets, is you can see even the suburban towns are placing emphasis on in-town development, proximity closer to the um, uh, commuter lines to get into the city. It's not this. It's not your uh, grandmother's uh, neighborhood, so to speak. Um, what we're seeing also uh, is in markets like Greenwich. Is there's an incredible disconnect uh, between um, meaning many sellers there are still priced or anchored to 2007, and that market never really saw the boom that we saw in the city. And uh, part of it is uh, because consumer tastes have changed, uh, the city, the high end, has poached some of the high end demand from the suburbs. So inventory not a problem in Greenwich, say? Uh, it, it is. I wouldn't say it's not a problem, but I would say it's yeah. not It's not 
limit, we don't have limited supply there. The way to describe Greenwich and other high-end housing markets in the suburban areas is just like the city, they're soft at the top. Mm. So there's very tight inventory, lower you know, entry middle markets, and it's it's very soft at the high end. There are transactions, there are high-end you sales. Know, you're so prestigious, Jonathan Miller, Miller Samuel, <laughs> that when you're quoted in whatever rag you're quoted in, a thousand people in New York stand up and go, he's an idiot. And they do that because nobody believes what you're talking. Wait, wait, is it Tom Keen just called me an idiot? <laughs> yeah, wait, John, John, no one buys the slowdown idea. Thanks for coming How, in. Define Appreciate the top market. Uh, Six million and up uh, for for Greenwich? No, for the real world here. Well, the Manhattan. So for the the real world here, uh, the top what we call the luxury market, top ten percent is north of about four two four point two million. Four point two million. What's what's a monthly mortgage on four point two million? Many buyers in that market. No mortgage. Um, right. About 80% of them don't have mortgages, okay. so We're it's a cash market. I want to come back very quickly here. Do you see that trickling down to mere mortals? I mean, Michael Barr's trying to slip into three bedrooms, two fireplaces for what, 700 a month or something, Michael, you're looking uh, at? At least 675. I mean, you live out past Akron, Ohio, right? <laughs> <laughs> Does I'm, I'm competing with bears. Does it trickle down? Uh, yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah, we absolutely are seeing some of that. Um, it, it takes a while because uh, you, you're really looking, at, at least in New York, the development community has taken about two years. Okay. That's where I want to go because okay. David Gura needs a new place. He's making kids so fast. Oh, my God. He needs a new place out in the land of Jonathan Miller. Uh, Jonathan, I'm looking at $10,500 a month. It's a duplex in Brooklyn. Screams David Gura. There's a balcony with a kale patch on it where he can grow his artisanal kale. It's a modern new building. You have told us years ago one of the big value adds of having you on is the boroughs in every city are going to build new condo-y-like property to house people. Is there really going to be a glut? Do you really buy that? Uh, there already is a, as you move to the very high end of the market. Then, uh, glut is a harsh word, but it's it's certainly there's there's uh, much more supply than there is as you move lower in price. In fact, uh, the problem is, is that because there's been so much uh, emphasis on luxury rental development that middle and entry-level markets have basically had static housing stock, which has forced many to uh, move to the suburbs and become first-time buyers. And you mentioned on the break Westchester. Yes, Westchester in the third quarter. And this has been going on for about five quarters. That's in Pennsylvania? <laughs> that is that is in New York. Watch it, <laughs> We have four sponsors up there. Be nice. Uh, that had the most sales in 35 yeah. years. David Girl, what's really interesting about this is Scarlet Foo's house has not gone up in Westchester because of the ice rink in the backyard. I see, it's, yeah. It's She's a negative. filling with the garden. It's, it's, day it's in inevitable. Day out, yeah. David will be moving here. So. <laughs> One more kid, you'll be out. But what's interesting, even with that flood of volume over the last year, year and a half, you're really not seeing pricing, uh, housing prices rise much yet. There's There was a lot of slack, so to speak, in the suburban markets, and I think it's going to take another year or two before we see a lot more price pressure like we're seeing in the city. Well, let's talk affordable housing broadly construed. Uh, as Thomas pointed out, I do live in Brooklyn. I'm on the Park Slope listserv, and I'm amused always when there is the ad for the bus tours of the suburbs that you can take. There is a point at which people begin to way the serious move out to Maplewood or to uh, that reminds Montclair. Me of the, or, for, the foreclosure bus tours yes, they had during the height of the yes. foreclosure bubble. They exist. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder 
when that tipping point is going to be, that, you know, you have neighborhoods, people like to be in these neighborhoods because of who's in the neighborhoods. This is a city that's really wrestling with this problem right now. Oh, yes. And I think this is what almost every municipality in the United States is wrestling with right now is affordable housing. And affordable housing, uh, not in terms of government subsidized, but in terms of middle class um, and working class housing. Uh, What we're seeing in, in for example, your market in Brooklyn is this outward radial push. So right now, Queens is is setting all-time price records from the Brooklyn spillover. Are we going to see a national policy? I mean, we make jokes about this, but this is not funny. It's awful. People are spending 50% plus. And, and I get letters from people. This is not about New York, San Francisco, Washington, and Boston. It's nationwide. Right. Are you going to see a housing policy... For people that, you know, I make jokes about 10500 a month. Come on. Right. Are we going to see a policy? I, You know, I think we can only see a policy when somebody actually figures it out. I, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about this over the last few years and no real uh, concrete solutions. Uh, one of the big items, I think, would be to figure out a way to normalize credit um, so that we don't uh, create this uh, tightness of inventory, um, and and I think you know when you have tight credit, low int- uh, unusually low interest rates, uh, it it really has caused uh, development to focus on the top of the market nationwide. Has the sell to buy gotten more difficult to make? In other words, uh, I'm I'm renting in Brooklyn. I know many people who who are, and the prospect of buying just isn't there. Is that changing? Are people more content renting than they have been in the past? Do you expect that's a trend that's going to continue? Uh, I, I don't know if it's content. It's more that they, you know, they really resigned. Want... I guess you. Could yeah, say. I think resigned <laughs> is a is a better word, and that's yeah. why we're seeing this phenomenon. People like yourself, uh, that you know, and it's not even that rents are rising; it's just that they're high. Right. Uh, you know, the way I describe the rental market in in New York is a high plateau. Uh, you know. In real estate, we tend to be very linear. When rents stop rising, that means they're going to fall. But that doesn't appear to be the case because we're five years ahead of population uh, projections from the census. We have a record number of employees. There's just a mismatch between the jobs you're creating and the housing that we're creating. When you look at, you know, let's go to you know Westchester, the suburbs of New Jersey. John, you were mentioning the airfield today. Yeah, we used to land airplanes. Yeah, this was in, out in uh, the good old days in Coltsneck, New Jersey, Coltsneck, where New I Jersey. learned to fly, and we would land in a cornfield. You'd land in a cornfield. If you go, we out don't need to, no stinking runway. If you go out to Coltsneck, you know wherever it is, it's it's I don't, it's it's across the Hudson, right? Yeah, it's in central New Jersey. It's central kind of New Jersey. What is the market land. like there, John Miller? Uh, it's it's a similar situation. It's much like Fairfield County, where you or have Westchester. Or, or yeah. Westchester, yeah. Uh, where where you're having heavy sales volume, um, but you, but when you skew to the top of the market, that's where it's softest. This is not a just a New York thing. This is um, what we're seeing. We're seeing that in San Francisco. We're seeing it in L.A., um, where the suburban markets are really starting to boom because the 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 role of new urbanism has almost been too successful the walkability that you know the the, the supply does, hasn't yeah, been but, able to react to demand in the right way David I know this is sacrilege for you but a large part of our audience sure. is going excuse me you don't need a granite counter right I mean there's a lot of people saying that that you know I remember the linoleum was ripped up on the kitchen floor and it wasn't a big deal 
Right, John? Help me here. I, I built my own counter, actually. <laughs> yes. He made, made the granite. <laughs> yeah, but, but a lot of that time comes down to the cost of land. The cost of land is what's driving the well, end product. John Miller's never enough time. No. Thank you so much. Come back when prices go down. Yeah. You bet. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.